Uh, If you would, open up to the book of Ruth. We will begin in Ruth chapter 1 this morning. And I'm excited to start a new series for the next three weeks. We're going to be looking at the book of Ruth. We're going to work uh, verse by verse through the whole book, which is only four chapters. And so it's really uh, pretty well within our ability to accomplish that. And uh, today we're going to talk about uh, where your home is and where your heart is and what the beginning of Ruth teaches us about this. So after a few weeks of talking about heroic manliness, we're going to dive into this story that is so unique in the scriptures. It's so unique in the Bible because this is one of the few stories that is told almost exclusively from the viewpoint of women. This is one of the few stories where you'll find these little insights as we move through the text that you're getting the perspective of the women in the story, how things look from their vantage point in society, how things look from their reality in day-to-day life, and what it means uh, to have hope for the future from the viewpoint of a woman, What what it looks like to have redemption. As we just sung about, I know that my Redeemer lives. Uh, Some of you have heard the word Redeemer enough times that it's lost its impact. And some of you may be sitting here saying, uh, I know that's a word they use in church, but what does it mean to redeem something or to be redeemed? Well, here's a simple picture of what it means to redeem something. How many of you have ever been uh, to a pawn shop? Hands up high if you've ever been to a pawn shop. Okay. Yeah, you don't have to be afraid about that. You don't have to be shy about that. It's okay. Uh, You go to a pawn shop, maybe for a couple reasons. One, to look for a deal. Or two, because you're in a pinch and you need a little bit of cash. And so here's the way pawn shops work. Uh, You take in an item that you think has some value, and they tell you it doesn't have as much value as you thought. (laughs) And then they give you a little bit of money, and you have a choice to make. You can keep the cash, and you can give up the item, or... You can come back with the cash plus some extra money and redeem the item back. You can buy it back. And that's what redemption means. Pure and simple, that's what redemption is. Something that's been handed over because at at the moment you couldn't afford to keep it. It's become lost to you in a sense. And you want to go back, you want to get it back, and somebody has to pay for it. Somebody has to redeem it. And so this story is a story of, uh, of loss, It's a story of kindness, it's a story of redemption, uh, something getting bought back, and it tells a greater spiritual story about the kind of redemption that Jesus Christ did for us. Now, uh, this is going to not really be part of the story, but let's start here. When when we say Jesus redeemed us, we just talked about the pawn shop analogy, picture this in your minds. We had a choice at some moment. At some moment, we had a choice to say, will I, uh, in this pinch do the thing that's really hard, follow God in this moment, be faithful to God's ways in this moment, or will I uh, sell my rights to be in God's blessing and his presence? Will I hand that over in exchange for something else in the short term, Uh, something that might be a currency, uh, an emotional currency of some kind, uh, or a pleasure of the moment? And so we've handed ourselves over to this thing, and the thing that we handed our, our rights over to would be called the the dark powers. It would be called sin. Uh, In various places in the Bible, the authors use both of those ideas. 
Uh, and eventually, sin leads to death. And so we've, we've essentially mortgaged ourselves by making some choice in a moment uh, to this pawn shop where the consequence is death. And Jesus comes into the picture to say, you are too valuable uh, to leave there. I am going to redeem you. I'm going to pay for your release and your restoration. This is the beautiful story of the gospel in just a, in a little picture, right, of a pawn shop analogy. Amen, church? The gospel, this is good news. And Jesus is going to come into the picture of your life and offer, I will redeem you. I will bring you back out of that place and make you useful again, give you full life again. I will restore your heart and I'll put you back in my home. And that's what Christ does for us. But this story in the Old Testament will paint a picture of how God works through ordinary people to make these kinds of things happen. As we get into the story, I want you to picture someone who has experienced loss. Someone who's experienced the loss, not just of an item that they pawned, but of a person who was dear to them, of their family and their home, and their heart feels empty. A couple of years ago, Jenna and I were traveling and we were in Germany traveling by train up the river valley that they call the Rhine River and stopping in some small towns uh, to stay. And we stayed in this one town that was called Bacharach. And Bacharach has some famous history because there's a castle there. And the castle is mostly ruins now, of course. You know, as castles go, it was involved in many various wars. It got destroyed and it got built again. And so there's pieces of old castle and new castle and then in the 20th century, someone had the idea of building a youth hostel on the grounds of the old castle. And so there's a place of lodging in this small town. It is a cute town. It's just what you would picture if you've ever thought of small old Germany. Uh, all of the houses have those boards on the outside, or they've kind of painted them onto the plaster to make it look like they've got all these boards on the outside of the building. The streets are cobblestone. You can just pop in a little cafe and get German foods uh, like apple strudel, which uh, we had some of that there. And it's like this apple pastry awesomeness piece of heaven that came down and descended to earth, right? And so in this little town where Jenna and I arrived to stay at the castle, we were looking for a place to eat one night. And we stopped in a diner. Uh, it was called Rusticana. And so we stopped in this little diner. It was one of the last places open that was still serving food for the evening. And we met a woman named Astrid. Astrid was a German woman who had lived in this town all of her life. She'd had a very interesting life. With her family, she had run this cafe for something like 40 years, her parents before her. She had raised horses, racehorses specifically, some of which had won great prizes in races in Europe. And so she had lived a, a full and interesting life until about four years before this, when her husband, the love of her life, passed away. And suddenly, her heart was empty. All of a sudden, home didn't feel like home anymore. The quaint little town and all of the, the beautiful scenery and the legacy at the diner and the legacy of raising the horses had less meaning because her heart was emptied. Jenna and I had some compassion on her. We felt uh, deeply when she told us this part of her story because like you all, we have all known someone, a parent, a grandparent, maybe a sibling, maybe yourself, who has felt how home changes and shifts whenever great loss occurs. It can induce bitterness in our life. It can lead us to a place where we wonder, why has God done this to me? 
Uh, in, in fact, in the words in this story, one person will say, why did he put his hand against me? Why did God say, no more happiness for you? And so this leads us into the beginning of our story for today, the great problem in the prologue of Ruth. And so we'll begin in verse one, and we'll read these first five verses. And today there's gonna be, in chapter one, there's gonna be four short sections. Uh, and so let's look at the first section here. And what I want you to see as we open up in the book, uh, in the first few words, you'll find these, these troubling facts about the story, that times are very hard. Uh, the family and the story has come across hard times. In fact, the whole country is in hard times because there's a famine in the land. So a very real problem in the ancient world, still a problem in the modern world. We just don't often feel the bite of famine here in our country, but it's still felt many places in the world. Uh, but especially in the ancient world, a famine could wipe out an entire people group. It could, it could end an entire country or an entire village. And so there's a severe famine, and also there's no king in the land. Uh, let's look at the verses, and you'll see how these problems develop. This story, like most Hebrew stories, gives you an incredible amount of information in a very compact way. The Jewish authors love to lead you quickly to the problem in the story and then to the climax of the story and the resolution. And they, and they do it using punchy words. So look at these. In the days when the judges ruled. Now this would tell a Jew all kinds of things about the setting of this family and their life. A few weeks ago, we briefly touched on this. The book of Judges precedes the book of Ruth. And the end of the book of Judges is dismal. Uh, it, it repeats several times the, the idea that in those days there was no king in Israel, meaning there was no king, human king, sitting on the throne, leading the people. So there's a lack of leadership, but it also means that they weren't even regarding God as king. The country was not uniformly following God as their leader. And so that's troubled times. The book of Judges ends on some very, very down notes. And in this day and in this time when things are already going bad, a severe famine came upon the land. So things get worse. And so a man from Bethlehem, Bethlehem ironically means house of bread. Isn't that something? Bethlehem means house of bread. And this is the way that the Jewish authors, you know, and, and the story that they're, that they're relating to you, compose it in such a punchy way that we, that we often just miss. We, we skip over it in English. The great irony is this is a place of blessing. It's near Jerusalem. You know, God's holy city. It's a house of bread. And yet it's the days of the judges. There's a famine. And so things are not as good as should have been expected. Uh, a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and he went to live. This word uh, does mean live, but more in the sense of a temporary residence than a permanent residence. He didn't immigrate. He sojourned. And sojourned isn't a word that we use so often in English now either, but it means to stay for a while in a foreign land or in another uh, city or another state. And so this man and his family temporarily moved to the country of Moab. And throughout the story, we'll have more insights on Moab. But suffice it to say for this morning, this is like saying that a good Midwestern or Southern American family uh, who loves the Lord and tries to serve him comes on hard times, and so they move to North Korea. It would just be unbelievable it's like saying, so they moved to the mountains of Afghanistan, and they lived amongst all of the insurgents there. This is, this is the country 
for Israel that just a few chapters back in the book of Judges was ruling over the Israelites, and God had to raise up a judge named Ehud who assassinated this very overweight king named Eglon of the Moabites in a, in a uh, kind of tricky way uh, in order just to set the people free from them again. These are the people of whom we have a stone that sits in Paris in the Louvre Museum, a stone that was written by Moabites that talks about how much they hate those Israelites and how much they despise their God, Yahweh. We actually have a written record in stone of the hatred and enmity between these two people groups. And they live just to the southeast of Judah, and this family moves there. And so troubled times become extremely hard times. He takes his wife and his two sons with him. Now, the man's name was Elimelech. Elimelech. Elimelech means God is king. And so we get an insight into the family in this moment. Here is a man. This is a man. In the time of the judges, when there is no king, and everyone does as he sees fit, who does fear God, who does trust God. He believes in him. In fact, he honors him as king. And his wife is blessed by this. Her, her name is Naomi. Naomi means pleasant or lovely. And so Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, uh, who were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah, when they reached Moab, they settled there. And then the story moves abruptly. Elimelech died. And Naomi was left with her two sons. Some hope in the story. The two sons married but maybe a shadow over that hope. They married Moabite women. They married women from this foreign country that hated the Israelites so much. They married women from this country who couldn't be trusted. They were considered to be like terrorists in their day. And so they married these Moabite women, and one uh, married a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about 10 years later, both Malon and Kilion died. And so the shadow that you felt over the story comes true. Things go from bad to worse. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. And it's in a moment like this that my mind goes back to Astrid, living in her little town, living amongst the people she's known all of her life, but feeling so empty and in search of what does home look like now? Can you imagine Naomi's predicament? She's not even in her hometown. She's far away. She's in a country that doesn't like her people. They don't worship her God. She's got these two daughter-in-laws that are from that country. And all of her natural family has passed away. Naomi's life begins full. She's called pleasant. She has a husband who honors God as king. And yet, it quickly becomes empty and bitter when they sojourn to this foreign land. Could you understand or empathize for a moment with Naomi? Why she felt so terrible about her situation? Why in the verses that we'll read here in just a moment, she says, God's made my life bitter because things have happened to her in a very bad way. The next section of our story, Naomi is going to decide to leave Moab and go back home. This isn't home for me anymore. There is nothing left here for me is the idea that Naomi must have pondered and thought about when she decided to leave. And so the text reads like this. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. 
So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab and return to her homeland. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And I want you to notice that. When she leaves, uh, it, it happens so abruptly and so quickly, it doesn't even take long to pack everything. She decides to go, and she sets out on the road. And, and her two daughter, daughters-in-law come with her, and there's no mention of a cart. There's no mention of anybody to help carry possessions. They probably are traveling with literally the clothes on their back and a small satchel of provisions without much to take home. And the two daughters-in-law accompany her on the road. You might wonder, when are they going to stop? At the border, before they enter Israel? It says they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. Will they go with her, or won't they? And on the way, it's Naomi who makes the choice. She said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes. This is another insight in the story that would say to the Jewish reader, wow, this is being told from the perspective of a woman, not the perspective of a man. Because almost always in the Hebrew culture, they refer to someone's home as their father's home, as their father's household. I'm not aware of anywhere else in Scripture, there may be one, but I'm not aware of another place in Scripture that refers to the home where someone was raised as their their mother's home. And so from the women's perspective, go back to where your mother is. You know, I'm empty now. I can't be a mother figure to you anymore. Go back to your natural mother. And may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. And so Naomi sends them home with gratitude for how they have accompanied her so far and how they had lived with their husbands. The time that they were married to them, it must have gone fairly well, even though there was no uh, children in the marriage and we don't know how long they were married. A good guess is that Orpah and Ruth at this time are probably somewhere in their early to mid-20s. You say, that seems very young. Uh, The text talked about them being in the land 10 years. But notice that they were in the land for 10 years and only later in the story were they married to these probably married at 15 or 16 and so maybe these young women are about the age of a college graduate in our world or a young professional they've got their whole future ahead of them they've got the chance to remarry and Naomi is going to tap into that she says may you be rewarded for your kindness to me may the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage Again, an insight into the the worldview of a woman in this time and in this place. Marriage isn't only about love, although love is certainly appreciated and and is hoped to exist in the home, but it's also about security. This is a world in which a woman infrequently was able to be her own uh, ruler of the home or a person who ran a business or a person who made an income in any legal or or noble way. And so, these women need security in their life. It's not just the, the love of their lives that's been ripped from them, but it's the hope of a future. How will we eat? Where will we live? Who will provide for us? And then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. Again, for all of the guys in the room, we go, just shake hands and be done with it, right? And the women understand this moment when they, they understand this is a moment of parting. And the author, who's sensitive to the situation that they're in, takes the time in a brief and punchy story to record that this leaving was with sorrow. There were tears, there was hugging, there was crying, there was probably eating of ice cream, if such a thing existed at that time. And then 
the daughters say to her, no, we want to go with you to your people. Have you ever noticed this element in the story? It's not only Ruth who shows faithfulness. Ruth and Orpah both offer to go with Naomi and to go home. Their initial offer is, we will go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? Okay, let's take a big pause for a moment here. <laughs> we got to put ourselves in the mind of the ancient world here for a second. What is, what is Naomi talking about? Can I have more sons to be your husbands? Remember that marriage was often about security as much as love. And one of the ways that families in the ancient world provided security for those who were widowed was that they would uh, have another marriage take place with inside the family. Usually a younger son would marry the widow uh, in the name of his older brother who had passed away. And this happened so frequently they even had a name for it. It was called a leveret marriage. And then uh, the first child that was born out of that union would carry on the name and the lineage and the birthright of the older brother that had passed away. And then the other children that came out of that union would, in name and lineage, belong to the younger brother and his wife. It's a very common practice in the ancient world and a common practice in Israel. It really, like, scrambles our brains, doesn't it? This is just not the way we're used to arrangements working. But Naomi isn't speaking about something weird to them. She's speaking compassionately. She says, why should you go on? Can I still give birth to other sons? You could grow up to be your husband. You know, I'm old and I won't be able to have more kids, there is no hope for a home with me. There is no hope that you could be happy and fulfilled and live a successful life with me. She says, no, my daughters. She refers to them very affectionately here in the text. No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And then she, she uses logic on them. She says, even if, I, if it were possible and I were to be pregnant and married tonight, right? Like if I met a man tonight, and we were pregnant tonight, and I had sons, then what? Like, are you going to wait 16 years or so? Would you wait for them to grow up? And the whole time that you're waiting, would you refuse to marry someone else? Would you really say no if a, if a young, handsome, wealthy, young suitor came along, you know, and he showed you a good time, and he had a secure home? Would you really wait for little babies that I would even have in nine months from now to grow up. Like, it's just, girls, it's not going to happen. And then she says to them, things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And so she says to them, you still have some hope, but for me, it's only bitterness. Uh, this is an important word. She's going to use this to rename herself in just a little while, but this is how she feels about her life. And again, they wept together, so there's some more good crying probably some more you know, snacking or something. There's chocolate this time. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. Orpah understands the logic, and she says, I get it. I've got to go live a life amongst my people and start over. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Ruth responds in a unique and startling way. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods, and you should do the same. And I want you to clue into those words She's gone back to your people and your gods. There was a god in the land of Moab, a false god, uh, that they worshipped. Often in their history, they worshipped in very profane and, and terrible ways. Uh, child sacrifices, all kinds of just different brutal practices. And they didn't worship the god of Israel in that land. 
And so she says to them, you need to go back to your own people group, to your own kind of worship. You shouldn't come on with me. And Ruth uh, makes a choice in this moment, a famous choice, one that maybe you've heard read before. And we're going to read it right now, and I'd ask for you to write the words into the back of your bullet and write these down and notice how much Ruth is leaving behind. What a, what a vast change in her world and her worldview that she is making as she chooses to cling to Naomi. Ruth replied to Naomi, don't ask me to leave you. In other words, stop telling me to go home. I am determined to go forward with you. Wow, she was, she was really, really insistent on that. Yeah, Don't tell me to turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. In a world of uncertainty with no, no guarantee of security, I'm going to go where you go. Uh, where you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, even though they hate me, even though they hate my, the people group that I come from, the Moabites, we're mortal enemies. I'm going to go and I'm going to make them my people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to convert, I'm going to immigrate, I'm going to be part of your people. Uh, and your God will be my God. Evidently, Ruth has seen something, a testimony that she saw in Elimelech, that she saw in Naomi and Malon and Kilion that has convinced her that this God is worth worshiping, He's worth following. And let's be honest, she's making a decision right now. She's making a decision to change things because her old home and her old heart are empty. And she's pursuing the only hopeful thing that she's seen in life, what she saw between Elimelech and Naomi. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. A very, uh, very solemn and serious oath. It almost sounds like a marriage vow, like a covenant vow. It's a commitment that she makes and says, I am in this for good. I am in this wholeheartedly. I am going to throw everything else that I've got into recreating and making a home with you somewhere. She understands uh, the old saying that home is where the heart is to mean this. If I want to make a home with you, I'm going to have to be in it with my whole heart. I cannot hold back. And so she doesn't. Ruth demonstrates these three things when she makes this commitment to Naomi. I want you to take them in and uh, meditate on them for a moment with me. She shows great compassion. Ruth shows compassion because, for one, she's able to understand part of the situation that Naomi's in. Ruth also has been widowed. Ruth also is in a situation where there's no security and there's no, no future promise. But she has great compassion that Naomi's situation is even worse than her own. As Naomi had said, I'm more, I'm more bitter than you because I don't even have a hope left of remarrying or having children. My life is as good as over. And again, my mind goes back to Astrid and how she told us her story in Germany about how she came to a point where she was sitting on the couch watching TV shows not taking any joy in going to the cafe anymore, not taking any joy in the horses. And she said to us, at that moment, I realized my life was just petering out. It was just heading towards my death. That was all that was left for me, was to watch TV until I died. And Ruth understands this and has great compassion on Naomi. She needs someone next to her so that she doesn't just go down towards death. She shows great faithfulness. Faithfulness in that she's willing to take uh, a very dangerous journey with Naomi and stand by her side. She's not going to leave her alone. She is going to be her partner in finding some kind of resolution or seeking some redemption or looking for a new life. 
She shows great courage for any woman to travel between Moab and Judah in those days by herself or even two together would be perilous. I mean, it's really dangerous. There's thieves on the road. There's, there's lions that live in the countryside. There's wild animals of all kinds. You could get lost. Uh, someone could rob you. You could be sold into slavery. There's so many things that could happen. And so Ruth also shows incredible courage, putting herself in a dangerous situation in order to act on the compassion and to act on the faithfulness that she feels towards Naomi. And when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. Naomi finally accepts, we're in this together. We're going to journey together. And the story ends in this way. One, one last section this morning. They arrive back in the house of bread. They arrive back in the land of Bethlehem, where, they, where Naomi had come from originally, where Ruth has probably never been, where there used to be abundance and then there was famine, and now God's blessing is there again. There's food again. The two of them continued on their journey. And when they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited. Now, I want you to envision this with me for a moment. I want you to envision a small, rural town. And probably in your mind right now, you're picturing a rural American town with just one main street. That's good. Let's start there. But then change all the buildings in your mind. Now they're built out of mud and clay instead of out of modern materials. They're only one to two stories tall. They've all got flat roofs where people can stand up there and work and sleep in the cool of the day with a little tent or canopy, and they can uh, read or they can talk and visit. And so there's people up there, and they can see who's coming in the small gate of the town. And there's not a square in the town, so the gate is the one area that's kind of open and that has room for people to buy and sell things. Most business transactions happen at the gate of the town. And that's also where the older people from the town will go out, since they don't work in the fields anymore, and they'll sit in the afternoons. And the older men, if there's any uh, cases in town of things that are undecided, any lawsuits, any problems between families, the older men who are the elders of the town will make a decision right there at the gate. Then someone, maybe a young worker in the field, looks up and they see a couple travelers coming towards the city. And one of them recognizes Naomi. Naomi who left us 10 years ago. And maybe this young lady goes running through the streets of the town. You can almost envision her, her old, you know, ancient world leather sandals as she runs. And those sandals slap on the dirt streets. A little puff of dust come up and swirl around her. She has to dodge around a, an ox here. And she's got to, you know, duck kind of around a goat there. And under somebody's arms that are full of all these fruits and vegetables that they're selling there. And she runs in a doorway and she says to this grandmother of hers or her mother, she says, you'll never believe what I just saw. Naomi is coming home. Naomi is coming home and in just a few moments the entire community is a buzz but most of the men in the day daytime at this season would probably be out in the fields working so really what this means is most of the women folk became a buzz all of this you know leaning out the one window and, and saying to the next have you heard have you heard Naomi is back and from one roof to the other hey hey come on down let's go see if it's really Naomi and it says the whole town's excited and, and they ask could it really be is it really Naomi that pleasant and wonderful woman who went out from us. And the women are the ones in the story who are asking this because it's a story told from the women's point of view. And when they all come around her, and you can imagine the way that it would happen with a crowd of old friends. They're all gathered around. Here she is in the middle. And her sorrow is worn and, and, and carried on her face and on her shoulders. And they gather around, and Naomi, Naomi, it's you. And she says, don't call me pleasant. 
Don't call me lovely. Don't call me beautiful. I was full, and now I'm empty. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord's brought me home empty. The Jewish authors love to use these, these little short, punchy parallelisms to drive home the point, full to empty, pleasant to bitter. She says, why call me pleasant when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? No. My name has changed. That was my old identity. My new reality is that my heart is empty and I have no home. I have no place left. And so Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. I want you to see in this verse also that their propositions for the future, their hope for the future is not necessarily any brighter because they've come back to Bethlehem. Naomi comes home, but who's her only companion? Ruth, the foreigner that everyone would hate and not trust. All of her friends surround her to welcome her home, and she holds them at arm's length. She shows an inability right now to even engage in her old friendships because of how sorrowful her life is. She comes home with no one to work for them, no one to provide for them, maybe going to live on the corner of the roof of a relative's house. Maybe she's got an old house that her and Elimelech had left, but it was left with happy memories and you know, joyful farewells, and she comes back in that dark doorway, and she sees the dust that's caked over everything. And she walks to her old room, and she shakes out the little pallet or the mattress that she sleeps on, and there's no husband to keep it warm at night. And all she's got is this foreigner in the next room who came with her, and they have no work. But there's a little bit of hope that the author writes in this story. He doesn't want you to close the book just yet. He says, the beginning of the barley harvest was near. It was time for them to start reaping food. And this is where the story will hinge into next week. And for today, I'm going to have to leave you there because next week, there's going to be a, a whole new movement in the story, which is all Ruth's good, hard, working attitude and character coming out again. But for today, you need to understand that the times are still hard. They haven't gotten much better yet. But by Ruth's strong character, because of the faithfulness she's shown, God is going to bring about some redemption. You remember the word we used at the beginning, redemption. There is something that God is going to buy back for them. And we wonder, is it going to be hope? Uh, is it going to be family? Is it going to be security? What is God going to redeem and restore to them so that they have something again. You know, they, they took a big chance by putting it all on the line to move to Moab. And they came back to the pawn shop, the money was spent, the item was gone, and now they're going, what do I do? Where do I turn next? This morning, I want you to think about this question in your own life. Who needs your compassion, your faithfulness, who needs your courage to be displayed? Sometimes when we're called on to show compassion, we don't even see hope of resolution. Sometimes when we're called on to be faithful to a person who's in need, we can't imagine how their life could ever be full again. We just, we look into their situation, all we know is all we know, and we just say, I can't see this turning out well. 
And I want you to ask, who is the person that needs me next to them, even though I can't imagine this turning out? Who is the person or the people that needs you to be courageous? Around the same time in history, just a few generations before, God had said to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Uh, trust that when you go into this land that I'm going to give you, that, that God, your God, is going to take care of everything. He'll drive out the foreign peoples in front of you. He'll give you land and food. He says, be courageous. And with just, just a few generations later, we find the greatest spark of courage that's being told about in Israel is coming from this foreigner woman in a story that takes place amongst the women folk. And the question is, could anyone have guessed that it would be her, little old regular Ruth from Moab, who would be the one to spark a courage revolution in Judah? No one could have guessed it. And no one might think that you're the person who could spark a courage revolution amongst your church, amongst your family, or in the town of Bentonville. But God has ways of working through people like you and me who history would maybe forget except for the fact that God will take small deposits of courage and turn it into huge rewards of redemption. This is the end of the story of Astrid, our friend from Germany. This is her small cafe that stands on that little one street in Bacharach. Jenna and I looked at and we said, that looks pretty good, and we walked in there. And who we met within just a few moments was these two people, Astrid on the left and Gunther on the right. Isn't that a good German name, Gunther? And Gunther was taking our order he didn't speak any English, so we were pointing at items on the menu, and he was really not sure he got it right, so he sent Astrid out to come and use her English to double-check and see if what we were ordering was, was in fact what we wanted to eat, and it was not. Uh, so that was really good that she did that. And what happened over the next few moments is we saw a picture of Astrid on the wall where she was standing in front of the Empire State Building. Actually, it's that, it's that photographic background that they take a picture of you, of you when you're at the Empire State Building. And we had the same picture in our phones, but of us. And we compared them and we showed pictures. And she said, let me tell you a story. I was sitting on that couch and I was watching a show thinking my life is over. I've got nothing left. And I saw people who were in South Africa and they were swimming in the ocean with sharks. And they were in a cage, and there were sharks outside. And she had a moment of great courage, and she said, I am either going to go swim with those sharks, or I'm going to die. And so, her little town that has this one little castle hostel is a familiar stopping place for backpackers. Young 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds who travel Europe with a backpack and, and travel in little hordes. And so she had seen them, and she went and sought some of them out and asked, teach me about backpacking. Teach me how to travel that way, inexpensive and light. And they did. And she got a little book on it, a little book about South Africa. And all on her own, she set out to travel. She went and she hiked across South Africa. She, she went skydiving. She swam with the sharks. And something in her heart came alive again. And when she came back home, home was a little bit brighter again. And it was because there was some heart in it again. Now, all the troubles weren't over. But she had something to look forward to, something to live for. And shortly thereafter, she met a travel partner who had also experienced loss and wanted to travel and experience life again with her, and it was Gunther. And a, a few months later, they were married. They got married in town, and now they run the little restaurant together. And that's the very man who was trying to take our order, her, her love, her travel companion, her new heart. They've made and forged a new home together out of courage in spite of fear. And we can do this kind of thing too. It doesn't always have to be just in, in marriage relationships. It may be in that we choose to follow where our elders lead and that we show great faithfulness and honor to them. 
It may be that as a church that we find courage to, to proclaim the good news about redemption to our community. It could happen in so many ways, but the question is, who needs it from you today? And we want to share an opportunity for you to meet with our shepherds, to pray with them if you have need, as we stand and sing this invitation song today. Some of our shepherds will be at the back and the front, and you can join them.